Thanks for checking out the Vox Church podcast. We are so honored to have you join us, and we hope this message speaks to you in a powerful way. Learn more about Vox Church by visiting us online at voxchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Welcome, welcome, welcome to church. It is so good to be together. My name is Sean, and I'm the ministries pastor here at Vox. Welcome to everybody that's joining us online. Welcome to the extended Vox family of churches. It's, it's so good to be together today in this way, for sure. Our lead pastor, Justin Kendrick, and his wife, Chrissy, are off this week taking a few days vacation. Well-deserved, glad for them, but really honored to be able to open up God's Word uh, with you this morning. We're going to hop right in. We've been in this series that we've been calling Headspace. We've been calling it Headspace, where we've been talking about this idea that the kind of thoughts that are in your head um, are really reflective of a story that you're coming to believe. And that story that you are coming to believe, and that I'm coming to believe all the time, really does, in many ways, set the trajectory of our lives. And so we've been asking ourselves some really important questions. Questions like, does God's story that I'm coming to believe, does that really set the trajectory of my life? Do I think with and have I internalized the story of God, the grid that puts God at the center of my mind, center of my life? Everybody has one of these story grids. Everybody has one of these lenses, we've been saying, through which they process, through which they see the world. Many call it a worldview, and a worldview is determined by some answers to some pretty deep, some pretty significant questions, questions like, like, who am I? Questions of identity and personhood. Who am I really? Why am I here? Questions of purpose. What is wrong with this world? And how can what's wrong be made right? These are all really, really crucial questions that the answers to which form this basic structure for how I process and understand truth. Truth is this word's going to be really important for us today. But then we take those truth assumptions, we take them with us into the really practical stuff of our lives in order to try to understand and give it context. So whether I'm watching the news, processing a news story, trying to understand the violence that I just witnessed at the Capitol, you know, trying to understand what to do with my dwindling financial picture, what to do, how do I think about and process this difficulty that I'm having in my marriage right now, to what degree, we've been asking this, to what degree does God and his story answer, and how God answers those big questions, to what degree do I allow his answers to form my answers to the rest of the stuff of my life. And so we've been looking at the story of Daniel. We've been looking at this, this character of Daniel in the Old Testament, this guy who was totally sold out in many ways for this story of God, a God-centered grid through which he sees the world, though the culture around him um, really didn't think like that at all. But he sticks to it. He sticks to that grid, though he faced a lot of opposition. Again and again, he doesn't shrink back, but he, holds, he just holds really tightly to that framework. For truth that he believes is really the only way to understand and to interpret the events going on around him all the time. This is a guy who really has internalized God's story uh, of truth. Well, we're going to take a little detour into the New Testament th- this morning. Take a little detour. And we really want to do that because we want to give a contrast in many ways to Daniel. Someone who we'll see there was willing to ask some big questions for sure. But when pressure was on, 
He chose his own story over God's. So if you've got your Bible with you, turn to John chapter 18, verses 33. We'll start in 33. If you have your Bible, open up there. If not, follow along on the screen. Here we go. Pilate then went back inside the palace. He summoned Jesus and he asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea? Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Jesus said. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. And with this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there. Would you pray with me? Father, we turn to your word in full trust, in full expectation that you want to meet us right at that spot where we open it and we, we trust that you have something to say. You have something to say to us of eternal value. And so we open up our minds, we open up our hearts to receive from you. Help us to understand, help us to process the way that you see the world and then give us an appetite to want it for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, when writing about American culture in 2020, 2021, in, in the frame for life that many are starting to adapt in the climate, the cultural climate that we find ourselves in, John Stone Street, who is an author and a cultural, culture commentator, he said this, he noted this, he said, every day, 500 million tweets are sent or retweeted. Four million hours of content are uploaded to YouTube. 4.3 billion Facebook messages are posted. Six billion Google searches are conducted to try to glean information. Pop-ups, Facebook feeds, Snapchat posts, commercials, movies, TV shows, sermons, news stories posted and reposted, banner ads and podcasts, all competing for us. Telling us something, what to believe, and thus how to live. These ideas are sometimes true, he writes, and sometimes they're false. Those peddling their versions of truth may have the best of intentions, or they may be trying to deceive or harm us. They may be genuinely trying to persuade us, or they could be trying to manipulate our emotions. Ideas and propositions of truth take many forms, and they come to us at a dizzying rate. But they must be taken seriously. Why? Because what we make of and what we do with truth has consequences. What we make of truth, how we get at answers, and where we look for it, that has consequences. Do we believe that today? Do we believe that? Can, can we handle that? Can, can we handle that? that it, it reminds me of, you can already see where I'm, I'm going with this idea. It reminds me of one of my favorite movie courtroom scenes of all time. For all of you movie buffs, you know a few good men. Can you handle it? You have this military trial court going on, and, and the military trial lawyer played by Tom Cruise, right? 
Lieutenant Caffey is, is his name. And, and there's a, a decorated military officer, Colonel Nathan Jessup, who takes the stand. And in this climactic scene of the movie, where all the details that Lieutenant Caffey has tried to uh, uncover as to whether or not Jessup has been complicit in the death of a military officer, Jessup sits on the stand, the witness stand. And Jessup, in this, again, tension-filled moment, he looks at Caffey and he says, you want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. You remember that scene? It's one of my favorites. So tense. It's so filled with tension. Man, if I had to say, um, if you could take our culture and you could plop it in that courtroom and you were to look for kind of a next line in the room, I think it would sound something like this. Man, I don't know if I can handle the truth, but if I were honest, I don't even know where to look for it. I don't even know where to look for it. If I were honest, I live my life in sort of this steady state of confusion. I don't know what's true. You know, not that long ago, um, I was on my way home um, from being out at Starbucks with my 11-year-old daughter, Lily. And I had been thinking a bunch about a lot of these things in, in preparation for today. What is truth and, and why is it important? And so I turned to her was it in the passenger seat and just with the best pontificating face that I could imagine, turning to my uh, 11-year-old daughter, I just turned to her and said, hey, Lily. I said, what? what's truth? What, what do you think truth is? And she kind of gave me this weird look like you would imagine. Dad, give me a break. But then there was this kind of this long pause, and she said, well, I know you got to tell it, so that's important. I said, yeah, totally, good point. But you're like, what, what is truth? And there was this long pause, and after she stopped giggling, she said, you know, I think the truth is kind of when you just tell each other the way things are. And I said, that's a really good point. You, you think that's important? Yep. Why? And again, just another long pause. And she said this. She said, Dad, I think that if you don't tell each other the way things really are, isn't everybody just going to kind of walk around confused all the time? It's a good point. You know, I think that if there's a description of a lot of people in our culture, that would be it, right? That people fairly regularly, they're walking around confused. Not because they lack intelligence, not because they even lack information, but there's something much deeper that eludes us, right? This thing of truth, how we understand truth and how we get at it, it matters a ton. But how did we get here? How do we get to this place of confusion? Man, humanity's approach to what this thing is of truth and how we get at it. It's taken a bunch of different jogs and turns through the centuries for sure, but for the last few hundred years, man, we've been shaped by the last few hundred years big time. You know, the 18th century... For those of you that are history buffs, you know that it brought in this time of just unparalleled human achievement. It was called the Age of Reason, later known as this period of enlightenment, where, where men began to discover at just a dizzying pace all that could be known through the natural world, through things like reason and philosophy and, and science. And there were proofs and there were formulas to explain these realities that were being observed all the time in the natural world. And it seemed like with every new discovery, the thought became further cemented that if we could explain things in the way that things really are through science and reason, 
why did we need this other category? Why did we need this category of the supernatural? What do we need God for? And man just applauded himself at all that he could do based on all that he could know. It was in many ways a revolution of truth, right? But you know, along came the 20th century. And in many ways, people became tired of these formulas. They became tired of these proofs for knowing. And by the time you get to the latter half of the 20th century, a modern period, it gave birth to this postmodern one that we find ourselves in now. And people weren't ready to throw science out the window by any means, but they began to think with ever-increasing volume that maybe these formulas aren't all they were cracked up to be. In areas like history, People began to question things like, man, how do we know? How do we know what really happened? We weren't there. The people that were there aren't around anymore. They're dead. And by the way, when you're trying to process and understand history, how do you do that? Don't people, as they account for history, don't they come to it with all kinds of perspective personally and and biases, personal opinions? Same idea began to take root in places like English and, and, and literature where, again, similar idea where authors, how do we really know what they meant? We can't really know, can we? They're not here. They can't explain it to us. So what we'll do is we'll break it down into its component parts and just kind of leave it out there. But how do we get at meaning? Well, I guess it's up to the individual to put it back together however he or she wants to. And man, that kind of thinking, it started to be applied to just about everything including morality, including right and wrong, and we blink our eyes, and now we're 50 years under our belts of believing a story at ever-increasing levels that it's really up to me to define the way things really are. Throw off those formulas. Anything that constrains me, it's up to me to define what's true for myself. So we're in a time now that many have called, and many are calling a post-truth era where the confusion that's come from internalizing this story rooted in this idea that all truth really is just defined by the individual and now with so many different versions of reality colliding into each other all the time, we have no fixed points. We have no common reference point on the horizon of our lives that we would navigate our lives through. We have no fixed points. No commonly internalized story that gives meaning. One that tells us who we are. One that tells us why we're here and what's wrong with this place and what the solution is to provide direction for our lives. You know, um, several years ago, I was actually teaching a, a class on some of these very things to a group of students from a bunch of mixed backgrounds. And I had begun to make the case that the Christian story, right, the Christian view of the world, it begins with this idea that there's this God from which all of reality, all of truth comes. And I drew this big circle in the middle of a whiteboard. And then I drew a smaller circle in the middle of it, and I put the word God in the center of that circle. And then I drew a bunch of arrows, almost like the spokes of a wheel coming out from the center of that circle that had God in the middle. And I drew different aspects of life. I put um, love and relationships and career and science and just about anything that you could think of, showing that all of life comes from, all of truth comes from, and it orbits around this center, God. And if I remove the center, 
later as the case was being made, then the whole thing falls apart according to this Christian view of the world. And there was this student in the back of the room, and I'll never forget his hand went up and very respectfully said, Sir, I don't believe that. I I don't believe that. I'd actually like to challenge your diagram. May I? And he walked from the back of the room up front. I said, for sure. And he took the whiteboard marker out of my hand. And I'll never forget what he said. He came up and he said, I don't understand why life has to be a circle coming from one common center. And then he drew a series of vertical lines, independent next to each other. And he just said, I don't understand why we can't understand that in the end, all there is, is my story. All there is, is your story, independent from one another, disconnected from one another. A few years back, there's an author by the name of Kathy Koch, and um, she observed this movement, heading and seeing truth in, in this way, and she pointed out kind of just five major markers that are tending to define the worldview of this emerging, this next generation way that, that she said we're beginning to process truth at ever-increasing measure. And here they are, these assumptions about life and truth. She said, as a result, here they are. I am the center of my own universe. I deserve to be happy all the time. I must always have choices. I am my own authority. And information is all I need. So I don't need teachers. The story of I so deeply getting internalized, where what's most true, which where, what's most real, is my personal preference, it's my personal opinion, it's how I feel. And you know, it's in this climate, it's in this climate of ours in 2021 that we find ourselves, that Jesus' words to Pilate, they should have really deep meaning for us today, 2,000 years later, because they run in exactly the opposite direction. There is truth, Jesus says, and you can actually know it. And in fact, it's the whole reason why I came. This interaction with Pilate has nothing on a few good men, I promised you. A few good men has nothing on it, rather. You know, atheistic philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, he once said this. He said, this is actually the most profound scene, even though he didn't believe a word of it. It's the most profound scene in all the Bible. Because in it, we find one of the most powerful politicians in the world. He confronts his most profound beliefs after meeting Jesus, this rabble-rousing preacher from nowhere. So here's what's going on. After his arrest, um, these Jewish and these Roman leaders that included Pilate, they're trying to figure out, what do we do with this Jesus? There's this riot that's going on outside of Pilate's house, and people are asking for Jesus' death, and Pilate comes back inside in order to get some answers. And, And he summoned Jesus, and he asked him, remember our text, he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus asks him, he says, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate answered. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you've done? Here's what Pilate wants to know. Are you a king? And what in the world did you do? Are you a king and what have you done? You know, Pilate's asking about Jesus' authority. He wants to know if he has it. Because if he does have it and the Jews are his people, he can't wrap his head around, why is it that these guys are screaming for your death? Well, we know exactly what he did. 
Because the question that Pilate is about to ask and then not wait around long enough to hear the answer, Jesus has actually been answering for a long time now. The Jews that are outside, like many before them in the last three years, they don't like what he's saying at all. In John chapter 8, the Jews are challenging a lot of the things that Jesus is having to say. And in one of these exchanges, we hear Jesus tell them this. He says this. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you're demon possessed. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Another way to translate that is what? Who do you think that you are? Who do you think you are? And Jesus' response is this. Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Do we see what Jesus is claiming? Jesus is claiming to be the great I am. He's claiming to be the great I am, the I am out of Exodus chapter 3 when Moses is standing before this supernaturally burning bush. The presence of God is palpable. And as he's about ready to be launched out to free the slaves, the Hebrew people from Egypt, scared out of his mind, he asks the burning bush in the voice of God, under what authority do I do this? When I go there and they think that I'm out of my mind, what is the authority that I go with. And God says simply, tell them what? Tell them I am sent you. Do we see what Jesus is claiming? He's claiming to be the eternal, omnipotent God, the one who has power and authority over everything that exists. The author of all life and their response. Their response is they pick up stones to throw at his head. They wanted to kill him. But you know what? It wouldn't be the only time. Because just two chapters later, it's not the only time he's claiming crazy things like this. In John chapter 10, he'd have the audacity to say in the temple, oh, by the way, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The eternal God of all creation who holds life and breath in his hands. And their response is exactly the same. They pick up stones. They pick up stones to throw at his head to put him to death. You know, the lead singer of the iconic music band U2, Bono, he was interviewed several years back. And the interviewer asked him at one point, knowing about his outspoken faith in Christ, asked this. This is the way she said it. She said, Jesus Christ has value, for sure, and is ranked amongst the great thinkers of the world. But son of God... Don't you think that's far-fetched? And this was Bono's response. No, it's not. The secular response to the Christian story, it always goes like this. He was a great prophet who had a lot of good things to say along the lines as others like Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius. But Jesus does not allow you to say that. Christ says, no, don't call me a teacher or a prophet. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. So to me, we're left with this. Either Christ is who he said he is or he's a complete nutcase. And I mean nuts. Like along the lines of Charles Manson. And I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire globe, 
in half the world's population, the human race has had its history completely changed by a nutcase. That's far-fetched to me. We know exactly what Jesus had done. What have you done? We know exactly what he had done and why those that are rioting outside wanted him dead. Because he's claiming to have absolute authority in their lives because of who he claimed to be, the Son of God. He claimed not only to have access to the truth, he wasn't claiming to point to the truth, he was claiming to be truth itself. This rabble-rousing carpenter from nowhere. You see, the unparalleled uniqueness of Jesus and the unparalleled uniqueness of the Christian faith is that truth is not an idea. Truth is not an idea or a concept to go after. It's not an idea to consider. Truth is a person. And if, the way things, if that's the way things really are, that Jesus is that person, then he gets to be the center of our story and not us. Can I ask you, I mean, I ask myself the same things. What do you really believe about these claims of Jesus? Because it all boils down to this. What do you believe about the truth? What do you believe about Jesus claiming to be the truth? Because if we believe this, like Bono says, this sets him apart. It, it doesn't allow us anymore to simply come to a place like this on a Sunday or any other day for that matter. You come to a place you listen to, you consider his teachings. Maybe you're a little bit inspired. Maybe you feel a little bit more spiritual than when you walked in. He doesn't let us do that anymore. You know, Pastor Tim Keller, he said once simply this. He said, to believe these things about Jesus means that I must look at the entirety of my life and say quite simply, command me. It's going to mean that we move in exactly the opposite direction of where our culture is moving, where we get to put the pieces together of our lives. And instead, with the thousands of decisions that we have to make and the problems that we have to solve, that we get really used to saying, what does God think about this? That becomes our impulse. What does God think about this? Instead of, what do I think? Or what does the person next to me think? What does somebody else think? You see, this is what Jesus was asking Pilate, isn't it? He says, you say I'm a king. Where did you get that from? Where did you get it from? When you're looking for what's true, Pilate, when you're looking for what's real, when you're looking for what's valuable or what's right, and when you're trying to decide what to do, where do you go, Pilate? Like, what's your impulse? Is it, is it to trust your own voice? Is it to trust your own opinion? Do you think about first the voice of the crowd? where you use popular opinion in order to establish your own personal preference. What about you? What about you? What about me? When you find yourself not knowing what to think in a day like we're in today, is it your impulse to ask on any level, what does God think? Or do you think about what seems or feels right to you in any given moment? You know, Proverbs 14, I mean, some of you know this passage, Proverbs 14, it tells us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end leads to death. It seems right that we would get this divorce, doesn't it? Why? Because I don't feel like we love each other anymore. What does God say? 
What does God say? He says, I hate divorce. He doesn't say, I hate divorced people. He says, I hate divorce. Why? Why do I hate divorce? Because when people say, I don't feel like we love each other anymore, it runs in the opposite direction of what love is and how I designed this whole thing of marriage to work, that people might flourish in it, where they abandon themselves and their preferences at every turn. It seems or it feels right to me in this situation, right, to hold a grudge against my boss for what he did to me or not to forgive my spouse or my friend that spoke the way they did about me. Why? Because they hurt me. What does Jesus say? What does God say? He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy. And pray for those who persecute you. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Man, when you consider um, what you think seems right, and when you listen to the crowd, you're going to hear a lot of things, right? And Jesus' constant pleading with us is, but I tell you. Man, do we want Jesus to have this kind of authority in our lives? These guys want to throw rocks at his head. How do we respond to that kind of desire for authority? We want him to have it if we believe that he is who he claims to be. But I tell you, they start to be words to run to and not to avoid. Why does he tell us this? But I tell you. Why does he tell us? Why is he so bent on telling us the way that things really are? Can I suggest to you today that he tells us this because he wants us to be free? Free from what? Free from lies. You know, um, I've got four kids. And when they get into about a second or third grade, each one of them, they're all beyond that now, but when they got to about second or third grade, um, we started talking to them really intentionally about sexuality. And there's stuff that happened kind of before that, but talking to them really directly about sexuality. Again, about third grade. If you want to know why, email me, whatever. Um, there's some reasons. It's not the only way to do it, for sure. But, um, yeah, we started in about third grade. And I remember my oldest son, I remember the first time that we had this first conversation. And we got to the end of the conversation after spending some time. And I remember him looking up at me, and, and he goes with these big blue eyes. He said, um, Dad, why are we talking about this again? And I remember looking back at him, and, and I go, after I kind of giggled a little bit, I, I just said, man, here's the deal. So you're going to hear a lot about this over the course of the next several years. You're going to hear a ton about it. Man, it's going to be in locker rooms and in conversations, in hallways, and as you go over friends' houses, you're going to, be hurt. You're going to hear a lot. And I'm telling you that very little about what you're going to hear is going to be true. And I just want you to know that when you have questions, I will always tell you the truth. Man, I can't tell you how much I want my kids to believe that. I'll always tell you the truth. Can you imagine being the author of all life and, and having designed everything to function in a certain way and have this specific meaning, a really true purpose, and then watching the ones that you created 
take this perfectly designed thing and use it in ways that it was never meant to be used, knowing full well that if they used it in ways other than what you designed it to be used as, ways that seemed right to them, that they had somewhere along the line they believed that it would be right to use it in this way, knowing that it could never bring them life if they used it that way, but that it would break and that it would ultimately kill them, what would you do? What would you do? You know, in verse 37, Jesus said this to Pilate, for this reason, for this reason I was born and for this purpose I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to my voice, Pilate. I came to tell you the truth. Is there anything more kind? Is there anything more gracious? You know, as the king of truth, here's what Jesus knows. That there are two forces at work in the world that have more power than you could possibly ever imagine. And they're truth and lies. And these are constantly in tension, right? They're constantly in tension all the time. He knows that everything that has gone wrong with this world has gone wrong because somewhere along the lines, people believed lies. That all sin has its root cause. And again, somewhere along the line, a lie was introduced and it was believed. It's what Romans tells us in chapter 1. It's what Paul tells us there in Romans 1, that at the heart of everything going wrong is that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And what happened? Listen to what Paul tells us happened. He says that their thinking became futile. That word literally means it didn't have a center. It didn't have purpose or meaning around which everything else orbited. It lost its center. And the greatest lie of all time is that you get to choose. And think about your worst moments, right? Think about your worst moments, your greatest moments of struggle. I guarantee you that a lie was introduced and a lie was believed. I know it's true of my story. You, you believed that you could have sexuality, without love and intimacy and commitment, and somewhere along the line you got addicted to pornography. You believed that you'd be happier if you had a little bit more money, maybe a lot of bit more money, and, and for years you worked 16 hours a day, and somewhere along the way you lost your friendships, you lost your family. You know, Jesus is saying to Pilate, do you get that there's only two sides here? There's truth and there's lies. And I've come to show those lies for what they are. Why? Because they're killing people. And I want people to be free. And there is no freedom without truth. Like, do we understand that? It was several years ago, um, when I was more involved in youth ministry, um, I walked into our Student Life Center to find two students um, that were actively involved in a game of ping pong. Um, except it wasn't your traditional game of ping pong because that game of ping pong, which I know the game well, and I know it's not supposed to be played this way, it was being played with iPads as paddles. iPads as paddles. Um, I don't know what made them want to do that. Um, I can guess what was in the heads of these brilliant teenagers was that they looked around and they didn't find the right equipment, and so they grabbed the nearest thing that had some type of a flat surface. It's not a cheap, but kind of maybe a convenient substitute for them. And, and to be honest, um, they were pretty good. 
they, they were doing pretty well for a while. I stopped and I tried to convince them that this was a little bit insane to be doing and that the things that they were holding as ping pong paddles were actually worth about $900 or so each, but they were having so much fun in the middle of the game that they didn't care about anything that I was saying. And they, again, they were actually doing pretty well until they weren't. And one of the guys wound up And as he came through to follow through on his forehand, he whacked that iPad into the side of the table. And it shattered into about 500 pieces, at least the screen did. And I just stood there with, I remember just standing there with this look kind of like I told you so on uh, on my face. Because now, here's the deal, now not only is this counterfeit game that they were playing, was it over, but the world of the iPad and everything about the good intention of the iPad and the design for the iPad was no longer accessible to them. There was a real truth for that iPad. There was a way that it was meant to be used. But because they wanted to play ping pong so badly, right? Now they didn't have access to anything, and their life was less full than when they started. You know, I ask myself, in what areas of my life, and I ask the same thing to you, in what areas of your life have you chosen a substitute for the real thing, only to have that piece of life shatter right in front of you, leaving you less alive than you were before? Convenient substitute for hard work, cheating. Convenient substitute for being generous. Well, man, I'm just saving. I'm just hoarding all my money. I'm just saving. I'm being responsible. Convenient substitute for the beauty of my marriage, an extramarital affair, promiscuous behavior. And each time that we just pick up the paddles that happen to be there, we turn our backs on truth. Not simply of a law that says don't do that, but of the rich life that was intended. You know, in John chapter 8, Verse 32, Jesus said this. Some of us know this passage well. He says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And you know, when he said this, the group of Jews, similar to the other ones we were looking at, they dug their heels in and they snapped back at him saying this. Listen to what they said. We're children of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. And Jesus responds, don't you get it? Anybody who sins is a slave to sin. Has that been your experience? Anybody who sins is a slave to sin. But here's the promise. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You see, Jesus ties truth and freedom together in a way that just cannot be separated. For you and I to be free and to live a life that we were always meant to live in every way, in every way, in every area, to know the good life. You can know it, full of joy, full of meaning, that we have to know the truth of how it was meant to be lived. Do you believe that today? You see, truth doesn't simply constrain us. We think that it does. It's what a postmodern view of the world has told us. Truth doesn't simply constrain us. It frees us. Man, can you imagine a group of people in 2021 amidst a culture of this massive confusion, not knowing what ends up ever, different versions of the truth being thrown at them all the time at this unseen rate that we were talking about? Can you imagine a group of people and what that would be like that could see through the counterfeits? They could see through the counterfeits and lies with ease because they really trusted that truth has one singular source. 
and that the truth that he brings is the most freeing. It's the most flourishing, the most life-affirming thing, affirming thing imaginable. Can you imagine? That group, I'm telling you, would be really attractive to a confused world. Can you imagine if Vox Church became known first and foremost as a place that is radically committed to the one singular truth of Jesus Christ from which all other truths come? I'll close with this. In 1995, um, as a college sophomore, I watched the Spirit of God um, break out on our college campus to convince people of truth in a way that I have not seen for a very long time. Because literally for five days straight, for 24 hours a day, I saw people of all kinds of backgrounds wait in lines for hours and hours to get into a room where the spirit of truth was just so palpable. College students that were going forward by the hundreds and hundreds, lines wrapped around this little small chapel just waiting to get in. There was confession of sin for sure round the clock. And there were lots of tears that were shed over the course of those five days. But can I tell you that those tears were not tears of shame? But they were tears of joy because their eyes were being opened to the true life that they were always meant to live. I remember the testimonies like it was yesterday. Porn had me by the throat. It was a lie. I've been comparing myself to others my whole life for my value. But God's shown me it's a lie. I've made mistakes that nobody knows about. And I have been convinced that the scars from those mistakes will always define me. They'll always be with me. But it was a lie. I remember those testimonies like it was yesterday. Can I tell you that the closest thing that I have seen since is what God is doing in New England right now. Truth has a name. And to know him always means freedom. Pilate asked the question. He asked, what is truth? And then he walked right out the door. He walked right out the door before Jesus could say, I'm right here. You know, for those five days, when I was a sophomore in college, the Spirit of Truth moved across our campus in such power that thousands were being encountered by that same question. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't walk away. They didn't walk away. They waited to hear the response, just like Thomas did in John chapter 14, when he looked at Jesus and he just said, please show me the way. And I always imagine the look on Jesus' face as he said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. But I've often wondered what the look was like on Jesus' face as Pilate walked away. The scriptures don't tell us. They don't give us the details. But being a dad, I really have often wondered if Jesus' eyes welled up with the tears of a father who would give literally anything, absolutely anything, for his blind child to see, will you just ask me? Will you just ask me? Will you listen to me? I am. This is the way things are. May it not be said of us.
He wants to show us how things really are. There's nothing more kind that he can do. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I ask that your spirit, even right now like we've been talking about, we ask that your spirit of truth would move, that you'd speak, that you'd speak in living rooms, that you would speak all over the place, God, where people are assembled and listening to these words. Would you very simply light up the fire of truth in hearts whereby you convince us in a fresh and freeing way of your design for our lives that we might humble ourselves underneath your mighty hand, that you would lift us up into a new kind of life, fully surrendered as we make the choice, even right now, to have our lives orbit around you and you alone, the author of our lives, who gave his own life to make sure that we could live to make sure that we could know the truth and that the truth would set us free. Holy Spirit, would you move in power? There's no one that has access to our hearts like you do to convince us of truth, and we're trusting you for the glory of your name. Amen. Fox Church seeks to reach New England and beyond with the life-transforming message of Jesus. If you have been impacted by this message, or the ministry of Vox Church, you can continue to help us reach others by giving today at voxchurch.org forward slash give. For more information on how to get involved, visit us online or on any social media platform at vox.church. We always appreciate you taking the time to rate or review this message on iTunes. Thanks again for listening to the Vox Church podcast.